This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker. This week, we have a very special episode We're here with Mary Rassenberger, who is the CEO of Authors Guild. She's a very established lawyer in her own right. I'm very excited to hear her. The Authors Guild recently filed a lawsuit against OpenAI, and it happens to be one of the defining copyright infringement lawsuits at the forefront of the development of AI. We'll discuss that and unpack that in this episode. Obviously, if you've been listening to the past few episodes, you know AI is a gating issue in a lot of entertainment controversies and disputes right now, particularly with the resolution of the WGA strike. So a lot to unpack with AI. Mary, thank you so much for joining. Can we get a little bit of your background just so the audience can can hear? Sure. Thanks for inviting me today, Paul. It's a pleasure to be talking to you on Better Call Paul. I love that name. I'm a media, IP, entertainment, publishing lawyer. You know, by training, I worked in several big New York law firms. Also had a stint at a record company way back when and uh, worked at the Copyright Office and the Library of Congress. And my last job before I came to the Authors Guild nine years ago was at Cowan Debates, a um, entertainment and media boutique. I think you're being modest. You are also a Harvard Law grad and a lecturer at Columbia Law, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Very, very smart lawyer indeed. I'm curious, obviously, that the topic of AI is going to be the substance of the episode, but I want to get into how you transitioned from being a partner at Cowan Debates to working at the Authors Guild. And when did you become CEO and what was that path like? You know, my whole career has more or less revolved around copyright in some manner or another, and including when I was at the Copyright Office, of course. And I've always been a very fervent protector of authors and creators. That's really what drew me into copyright law in the first place. When I was a a baby associate at, at White and Case, I was fortunate enough to have been plucked out of litigation in my first few months there um, and asked to be in the IP group and quickly started working on copyright, which I fell in love with, in part because in my personal life, I'm surrounded by authors and other creative people. You know, my 
husband was an author, my brother, most of my best friends. So I followed the Authors Guild's work with interest. They were a client at Cowan Debates. And when the job opening came up, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And of course, I knew Paul, the prior executive director, very well. I'd worked with him and, and the general counsel, Jan Constantine. I had been involved in the Google Books litigation, representing outside parties, had gotten to know them through that and through other work. And while in the copyright office, saw how much the Authors Guild had done over the years to shape copyright law. The Authors Guild was very influential in some of the provisions that are in the current Copyright Act, the 1976 Act. And has ever since its foundation, its very beginnings, back in 1912, the Authors Guild has been a real presence in congressional discussions around copyright. So I am very interested in the Authors Guild. For those who don't know, a lot, often this happens when you're practicing at a law firm and you have this relationship with a client that develops over the course of years and you're someone they trust. Often there is an opportunity to go join them and sort of go in-house because you're a known quantity. So that's one of the things that maybe people on the outside don't realize happens from time to time. Do you like it more than being a partner at Cowan Debates? I love my current job. I really love it. I mean, I can't think of a, of a better job for me. And when I interviewed, I actually said that. It felt like my entire career had been preparing me for this role in a way. Because I, I, I jumped around a bit. You know, I was at White and Case. I was at Skadden twice. I was at Morrison Forster, the record company. But then I went to the copyright office where after a few years, I started working for the Library of Congress and eventually got moved upstairs to work in the, um, the librarian's office and was directing the Digital Preservation Program, which was a national program to figure out how to preserve digital, digital materials. So that gave me some management. It you know, helped me develop another side of my professional life. So when this job came up, it just seemed like such a great way to meld all my interests and, and my background. Do you think the Authors Guild is like a non-governmental steward of, obviously you have to collectively represent the authors, but if you were, let's say in a different context, uh, had a seat at the table and there was a congressional legislation about how AI should be regulated, was this a problem that you were thinking about or was this something that was on your radar years ago? We have actively, and I personally have been actively thinking about uh, AI and the implications for writers since about 2019. And I guess okay. I can pinpoint, it came up in the, in the context of the Google Books case too, but only tangentially, because we knew that one of the things that Google wanted to do with the books that it was scanning was to train its computers how to read and write. But in 2019, I was invited to participate in a panel at the Patent and Trademark Office. They did an all-day symposium on IP and artificial intelligence. And in working with David Carson, who was then head of copyright at the PTO, he sent a lot of articles. I just got really interested in this issue. I was on the panel, but I realized, oh my God, this is this is coming for writers. This is, you know, right around the corner. And we 
better start getting ready for it. We had not been actively talking to Congress on AI, though. We had spoken at the PTO. We'd submitted comments to the PTO. The Copyright Office also had a series of roundtables and requests for comments, which we participated in. I also drafted comments for the WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. I was, uh, on behalf of the ABA, I also was the copyright person on the ABA's comments to the WIPO and the PTO. We had discussed the kinds of changes that might need to happen in the law, but we weren't actively lobbying on it until March. By March, we had legislative proposals in hand. We went down with a group of uh, other creator organizations, and we started lobbying really seriously on AI. And we've been doing so ever since. And what sort of changes were you advocating for, like protections of the unauthorized use of copyrighted works or what would qualify for copyright protection? Well, so all of the above. Our legislative requests are around a, a few dish, different issues. So one is, um, and I'll start with the ones that we're most likely to get, though they weren't at the top of our list initially. But one is we want transparency from AI developers on what data sets, what copyrighted materials they're using to train their AI. We started asking for this back in March. We've seen a growing sophistication within Congress on these issues, and we've now seen several pieces of legislation on that. The other one is labeling AI-generated content. We want it labeled because we see that the markets could get inundated with AI-generated books and other written content pretty quickly, and we think consumers have the right to know what they're buying. Um, and if they want human written works, they should get human written works and not AI generated. For now, I should say crap. <laughs> um, we don't right, make it right. better over time um, by, by mistake, which is already happening. There's already a lot of AI written books on Amazon and um, people buy them by mistake. And they're, they're really bad. And Amazon has been working with us to make sure those books get taken down because they just, they don't meet the quality standards. We also worked, we've been attacking this, I should just say, from every, every side. So we've been working with Amazon to try to get them to require disclosure of AI generated books also. Back in Congress, we have also seen several pieces of legislation on labeling AI content. Now, that it intersects with a lot of concerns among Congress and the rest of the world about deep fakes. So we want to go a little further than just deep fakes to say any AI-generated content, including books, needs to be labeled. We've already seen some legislation introduced, and I think we'll see some other pieces of legislation on that. We're also asking Congress for help to clarify that when AI companies use books or authors' works generally to train AI, that has to be done with permission. They need to get consent, and they need to pay for it. And what they've done to date is just say, oh, it's all fair use. So fair use is a concept under copyright law. It's a defense that says that you can use somebody's work without permission, but only under certain circumstances. And, you know, there's some case law saying that you can do mass use under fair use, such as the Google Books case, but it's very limited in scope. And we feel strongly that this type of use is just not fair use. 
and it is certainly not fair. Authors are really upset about seeing that their books have been used and can therefore be replicated in the outputs of uh, GPT, BARD, and the other LLMs. We have discussed fair use uh, on the show before, and I think what the takeaway I often say is it's a very fact-specific, nuanced analysis that is meant to be limited. The work has to be transformative, not competitive, or it wouldn't harm the economic market for the original work. There are some exceptions, but you can't just run a business and say it's fair use. You know, that's not really the intent of fair use. Exactly. Uh, oh, sorry, I was go just going to say, and here, the potential harm, I mean, the four factors, you know, the fair use analysis is a four-factor test. And the, uh, the first factor includes whether it's commercial, and the Warhol v. Goldsmith case in the Supreme Court just clarified that, that just because something is transformative, you still have to look at the fact that it's commercial. This is a highly commercial use. OpenAI, for instance, is valued in the tens of billions. They are already making money hand over fist, and they will be. You know, this is, they're out there to make a ton of money, and they're doing it on the backs of authors and other professional writers and not paying them a cent for it. And that's not okay because these machines can be used to replace authors and will be and can be used to mimic their style, you know, create like what happened with George Martin is somebody wrote book six and seven, you know, the sequels that everyone's waiting for using AI. So there's a lot, there's a lot at risk here. And the potential, the fourth factor is effect on the market or the potential market. And for the works that have been infringed. And obviously we see potential great harm here. Right, so just to give the, the background on the facts. So OpenAI, for anyone that doesn't know, was founded as a nonprofit in 2015 to research AI. And then in 2019, rebranded itself or formed another subsidiary that was for-profit, but it was a cap for-profit. And since then, I think the part of the justification was they wanted to be able to compensate AI researchers along with the market, and they didn't want to lose talented people to the likes of Meta and Google. But in reality, as you as you say, Mary, there's always been a tension between research and openness and revenue. And so if AI can really change the world and compete and revolutionize industries, it's obviously going to generate revenue. OpenAI, there's rumors it's it's valued at uh, $30 billion right now, and it could go well beyond that, right, if it has the potential to potentially displace jobs or, or make work in a more efficient way or, or whatever. There's, there's a lot of potential pros. There's a lot of potential cons. And so the Authors Guild filed a lawsuit for copyright infringement against OpenAI. What was this, in September? Yes, yes. Okay. September 19th. So the complaint was filed in the Southern District of New York last month. But essentially, it is what you said, Mary. They took copyrighted works of authors that were members of the Authors Guild that were owned and registered by those authors, put them into their data sets to train their LLMs. There was an opportunity to get permission or to get a license, but they didn't. Correct, correct. And I should just clarify one thing, that the suit is a class action. We have 18 named plaintiffs. The Authors Guild is one of them. We are a plaintiff as a copyright owner. So we own some copyrights that were bequeathed to us. The other 17, most of them are just happen to be members of, of the Guild, but not all of them are. So the case is being brought on behalf of 
all fiction writers whose works have been used to train GPT. And I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Tens of thousands of authors. Yes, yes, exactly. And so you filed the complaint in September. Do you have a sense of whatever you're able to share publicly on what the timeline would be for this case? Well, like any class action litigation, it's going to take some time, right? You know, we're expecting to go into discovery in 2024. Uh, I can't imagine we'll get to a trial, you know, for a couple of years. I imagine there'll be some motion, the motion, I don't know, there'll be a motion to dismiss or whatever, but we will be, it will take some time. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a lot of discussion about this. It's a very cutting edge complaint. And some are saying this is possibly the strongest case one could make for copyright infringement. Obviously, that would be your side as the plaintiff. What do you think some of the defenses might be? Well, the defense is going to be this is fair use. And we've already seen motions to dismiss in some of the other lawsuits against OpenAI that have been filed in the Northern District of California against OpenAI, there have been three filed so far, two by the Joe Severi law firm and on behalf of both class action lawsuits with different name plaintiffs. And then there's a third one that was recently brought right before our suit was filed in, in early September that another firm um, has brought also in the Northern District of California. The motions practice in the first one, the, the motion to dismiss, uh, has already been briefed. And in the defendant's briefs, Open AI's brief, they have begun to lay out what I think their argument is going to be for all of these cases, basically saying this is such an important tool for society. And they're trying to make an argument that it's transformative and such an important use that, of course, the court has to allow this. Now, I don't think the courts are going to buy it because they could have licensed they could have gotten licenses. There's no reason they couldn't have. There is harm. And yes, you can argue this is an important tool for society. And without a doubt, it is. I mean, they're just amazing types of things that you can do with AI. And we're going to see more and more of that in the future. But having culture, having creative professionals is also important. You have to remember, copyright is in the Constitution. It's the only right in the Constitution, and there's a reason for that. It's because you do not have a real democracy unless you can have 
this engine of free speech, as the Supreme Court called copyright in, um, in the Ford v. Nation case, because there's no way to have authors paid in an open market economy without creating this ecosystem, this economy that copyright does create. So if authors can't get paid, guess what? They don't write. They go do something else. And you don't have books or you don't have great books. You might have hobbyists writing books, but great books tend to get written by people who write as a profession. And we're talking right in the context of the Authors Guild, but it's not limited to just books. It's really art, music, any creative work that would qualify for copyright. The reason it exists, as you said, is to, if, if people can't sell their works and have the exclusive right to distribute, monetize their works or license the distribution of their works, then, you know, what value is there in creating it other than the passion that you might have, right? People need to put food on the table. They need to earn a living. Do you think that there's a reasonable licensing structure that could be put in place? Or do you think it's just a matter of consent? No, no, there's absolutely a licensing structure that can be put in place. And it's something actually we have been working on for years. Um, We just haven't gotten funding for it. Um, (laughs) So we haven't implemented it yet. But we started talking to Microsoft, OpenAI, and others back early spring this year to say, we can set up a licensing system. We know how to do it. We already, we, we have a sister organization, the Authors Registry, that takes their statutory licenses in most of the rest of the world for uses of text, such as for photocopying and university uses. Those are collected overseas For the UK and a few other countries, we take those fees that are due to US authors and distribute them. So we already have this system set up. We know how to reach authors. We know how to get the money. We have a system that we want to build that will allow authors to say, yes, I want to license my work for any number of uses, including AI, uh, for training, and I'll agree to this amount of money, or I'll agree that they can do it for free, or, you know, and there can be conditions. You can use my work for training, but you have to filter out my work for any output use, meaning that the text itself couldn't show up in an output. And that is something that AI companies can do now. So you could put all kinds of, of conditions around it. And it is something that we're actively working on building. I think it's very interesting. This is something that the WGA arrived at in a similar fashion, not necessarily the licensing, but when they did resolve their strike with the AMPTP, they said that any AI-generated work had to be labeled. It couldn't be used without the consent of the studio. And if an author wanted to use it, they would need the studio's consent and to operate within the parameters that the studio set for AI. And any AI-generated material wouldn't count for writing credit or purposes of separated rights. So it's a very logical construct. I guess the devil's in the details. And then thinking about other industries, I know music is one where blanket licenses are prevalent. And it's a very complex structure, but it's really the only way to reward the creators of works that are used in mass. So I suppose that would that would possibly be how it would be resolved. But I guess it, it is a very daunting task. Yeah, it's not as daunting as you would think, actually. We really... It's, you know, what we need is a few hundred thousand dollars um, and okay. <laughs> to build the system. We've already got some quotes. And the model that we're looking at is the ASCAP EMI model, 
which is just so the listeners understand what they do, they license out songwriter rights for performances. So every time you walk into a store or a bar, restaurant that plays music, they're paying for blanket licenses to ASCAP and BMI. Also, when music is played in any kind of concert venue. And that is done on a blanket licensing basis. We would want to try to replicate that. And like ASCAP and BMI, it would be completely opt-in. One of the interesting things is the, the ability to create a derivative work through this chat GPT. So for example, in your, in your complaint, someone, I think his name was Liam, wrote the next two books in the Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire series by putting in prompts in chat GPT. If I said, hey, write me the sequel to this great American novel, does that mean that I own that derivative work or is it licensed if the author opted in? Um, If the author opted in, if you got a license, yes, you would own the derivative work rights, which means you would own only the aspects that you had created, right? It doesn't give you any rights to the underlying work, just so that's clear. But if you don't get permission, then it's an infringing derivative work and there's no ownership right in that. Got it. So it'd be kind of, if you if the author opted in, it would be related to whatever was unique about your prompt that um, you know expanded the nature of the underlying work. I should clarify, actually. <laughs> if it's AI generated, there is no copyright. Okay. So, and that is right. something we have been arguing for that the law says, and that shouldn't be changed. The Copyright Office completely agrees, and we've now seen a lawsuit in the district court in D.C. that agrees that AI-generated material is not protected by copyright. To the extent a human uses AI to create material, the human authorship that is contributed is copyrightable, but the AI-generated authorship is not. And that's not always so easy to determine. I would say with text, it's easier because you can do it on a kind of sentence-by-sentence basis. And the way authors use AI right now is they might say, yeah, help me brainstorm this idea or you know, write up sort of an introduction or something. So an author might even start with some AI-generated text but they're going to make it their own and give it their own voice and just take bits and parts here. The ultimate result will likely be copyrightable because it will be human created. It has human authorship, but to the extent there are paragraphs taken straight from say GPT, those paragraphs would not be protected by copyright. Got it. Yeah. We, we discussed that case. And I remember in that episode, we said it also wouldn't apply to an elephant that painted something with its right. Prop, right. It still wouldn't be copyright protected. Yeah. What well, one of the so, things I did in my career was oh. I oversaw the compendium three, which is the copyright office's compendium of practice. And um, when I left SCAD the sep- second time around, I did it because Maria Polante, who was then register, asked me to oversee this new compendium, which I've been asking for because it was so the copyright office practices at the time were pretty opaque to people outside the office. And in doing that, I actually, one of the examples I, I put in it was an elephant trying to paint. <laughs> it was not copyrightable. Right. It's a bummer for the elephants, but yeah, it is, it is what it is. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So... One question I always had is, what's the difference between, and this comes up in music infringement all the time, when something was just inspiration, right? Like, as you said, bits and pieces, you listen to a bunch of jazz musicians and you come up with a jazz song, and when something is just illegal infringement or unauthorized copying. Can we draw that distinction with these algorithms? Well, yes and no. So, you know, one question is for a human, what's the difference between inspiration and infringement? And we can talk about that because some that's can sometimes be a blurry line just to <laughs> make a joke because one of the cases about that was the blurred lines um, song in case. Right. So, but you know, some AI companies like argue, well, AI developers love to say, well, you know, the computers are just reading. They're just being inspired, just like humans read and are inspired by what they read. And that is just such a false equivalency. I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, computers are not people. They're machines. People use them <laughs> to to do things like to infringe. There's a fundamental difference in scale. I mean, these AI, the generative AI machines are capable of doing things that humans really can't do, not without massive, massive numbers of hours, like capturing someone else's style is actually for a human really, really hard. You have to be really good and you have to spend a lot of time like perfectly capturing someone else's style, whether in image or, or in text. And oh my gosh, you know, GPT is so good at that. So you have to, machines are not the same as humans. Um, whatever AI writes has no human experience. It has no voice. It's just, it's mimicry. It's copying. I mean, think of it, it's like they take all this text and put it in a big blender, you know, that's maybe got some magnets. And, you know, each, if you think of magnets as kind of prompts or pre prompts, and certain things kind of stick to different magnets, but it's not, it's not anything new. There's nothing new that's happening. It's just recombination. And then the last point is, of course, if a person, you know, reads a book, they're going to buy it or they get it from the library and the library's bought it. And what the AI companies have done so far is where they got books was from pirate websites. Right. I saw that in the complaint. It's a, the internet is a potential trove of unauthorized, illegal, unlicensed content that, you know, when you're an author, you put your work out in the world and you have to rely on copyright to protect your rights in it. Right. And that's, that's why we need those guardrails. I want to shift as we conclude the episode. So Goldman Sachs says technologies like 
OpenAI, ChatGPT, and its future iterations could replace up to 300 million full-time workers, which is roughly 25% of the labor force in the U.S. and uh, or North America and Europe. It was stated in your complaint that writers are already, it's not, in a, it's not a future risk, it's they're currently losing money and opportunities because it's not necessarily books, it's also other forms of writing that they do on the side to make ends meet. That The demand for that is, is shrinking because people are using AI-generated language to obviate the need to hire writers. Where do you think this goes? I mean, I, as a as a purist, as a friend of the author, I think you know that there's a complete difference between what something was, you know, created by a talented human author and when something was written by an algorithm. Obviously, that line may get closer as these algorithms develop. But do you think there's other than the licensing scheme? Do you think there's a way that these can coexist? I do, I do, and I think we're going to have to figure that out because we cannot lose human culture a professional human culture. I mean, economically, we can't afford to do it either. We talk about AI as how important it is for the economy, but copyright, as you probably know, brings something like, you know, uh, 10% of the GDP. It's a huge export of this country. We're really, really good at creativity in this country. You know, our movie, our movie industry, our music industry, our book industry, we export those industries. We export our culture. So one, we don't want to lose that. But we also, I mean, humans, the, what binds us together is our culture, our arts. And you don't want to lose that. AI can never replace human-created content. It can never be real art because of just the way it works. It's always in the past. It's always just taking what has been said, what has been created. And as I said before, kind of remixing it, it gives us a super intelligent because it's able to sort of scan everything all at once and know everything all at once. And, you know, if we could all keep all that knowledge in our heads and have it easily accessed, yeah, we could be sort of super intelligent too, but that's we're, we're limited in that regard, how much we can store in our brains and, and quickly retrieve. But what we do have is that we bring our daily experience, our voice, our fears, our hopes, our dreams into everything we create. You know, there's it's almost impossible for a human to write without putting what we call voice into what they're writing. That's personality. That's what the, the Supreme Court referred to as what copyright protects, what authorship is. It's bringing the human intellect and the human personality into what's created. So we need I to agree. retain I that. But we need the guardrails to make sure... AI is going to go forward without a doubt. You know, we are, it's the train has left the station and there are a lot of reasons that AI is going to be really good for us in the future, but we cannot let it interfere with, destroy human culture. And since the release of GPT, we've been talking to AI developers, AI companies about this and they get it, you know, they, they don't want to destroy human culture. I think a lot of people who work at AI companies are just, they don't get it. They don't understand the creative economy. And that's our job is to help people understand that and to understand that really, if you can't pay authors, they really are not going to be able to keep writing. We just did a, uh, we do these surveys every five years of authors' incomes. And 
we just this year did a new one and found that the median author income for full-time writers is $20,000 from all writing-related activity and only half of that from books. You know, what this means is that, yeah, authors are not earning very much at all. You go into it for the love of the of the the love of writing, the love of the craft. You know, you're not doing it with the exception of a handful of people. You're really not making much money at all. And it also means you're constantly hustling. Most full-time writers teach, they might book coach, they do freelance writing, they do a lot of other work in addition to writing books. It's it's a it's a hard life. And it doesn't take a lot to just make that completely untenable and for people to say, okay, I guess I got to go do something else, you know, because this is just not, not working because ultimately people have to pay the bills and not everybody has a rich spouse, you know, or inherited money. And we don't want a world where the only people who can write are people who have spouses who make enough money or, or inherited money or something. The Authors Guild and our foundation, our ultimate mission is, yes, to protect the profession of writing, but to do that to ensure that in this country we have a robust and diverse literary culture that represents all American voices. And the only way you can do that is with copyright, where people can, writers can earn money from their writing in a, in a merit-based right. no, So it's a tool, not a substitute. Yes, exactly. As a tool, not a substitute. And I just, I want to end by quoting Senator Heinrich was in a a discussion, a fireside chat earlier this week with George Martin, and they talked a little bit about our case. And this made me feel very optimistic because he did say, and and he is one of the senators leading the charge in the Senate on legislation around AI. And he said, I don't think you should be able to train a model on copyrighted material, protected IP without consent of the individual to use the IP. That is the heart of the case. And there he's referring to our case against OpenAI. And I think we should make that imminently clear. AI should be a tool for human content creators, not a replacement. To, to your point. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mary. It was really enlightening hearing your side of this. I, I couldn't agree more as an artist or at least a podcaster. And I think it's a very challenging thing. I think we want to have innovation technology. We want to have these advancements, but not at the expense of our culture and of the the things that make humanity great. Exactly. Very well put. Thank you so much, Mary. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Thanks again to Mary Rassenberger. CEO of the Authors Guild and law professor at Columbia University. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks again for listening. Please check us out on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow Mesh on X, formerly known as Twitter, and definitely follow Better Call Paul on Instagram, TikTok. Thank you so much. Have a great week.